This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. It is Friday, October 8th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we will talk about the LDS matchups. Four really nice series on tap starting up, of course, on Thursday, which will happen before you hear this show. So there's going to be some stuff we talk about in the AL matchups that might make a little less sense depending on what happens in those first games. But great series that we're going to break down nonetheless. We'll talk about some possible changes for two teams that were eliminated in the wild card round in the Yankees and Cardinals. We'll talk about the Fall League rosters, which actually look very good this year, which is very exciting for Keith and for anybody else who's getting out to the AFL. And we probably will get into a few non-playoff things as well as the NL West is trying to make itself more interesting each and every day. But Keith, I want to start with the White Sox-Astros series. This feels like an LCS caliber matchup between these two teams because top to bottom, both have fantastic offenses. I think both have well above average starting pitching. Maybe not the best starting pitching in the postseason, but better than typical teams. They belong here. And these bullpens, especially the White Sox bullpen, is absolutely loaded if you said build a team that could be dangerous to the Astros, the White Sox tick a lot of the boxes. Yeah, I think that um, the Rays are the best team in the American League, but uh, and they could still very easily go to the World Series. But when I did my picks for the Athletic uh, playoff picks, I actually had the White Sox coming out of the American League to go to the World Series, and the biggest reason for that, other than you know, and I acknowledged in the piece too, postseason picks are kind of a fool's errand, right? It's it's pretty close to coin flip in most of these series. So you could use pretend science. You could make it sound <laughs> like you're doing something really sophisticated. But I think everything we know from everybody who's spent a lot of time researching this is that there are a few things that, like maybe it's like a little thumb on the scale here. And that's about as strong as you can get in terms of one team having a real advantage. And I will say... So the reason I picked the White Sox is I think the front three in their rotation and the guys we're going to see more in their bullpen are actually that good, that much better than probably anybody else they're going to face. Now, I don't really trust La Russa um, as a manager. I don't think he's very good as a tactician. Um, it would not surprise me at all if he made some kind of significant mistake at some point that cost them a game, but I think they are the best situated of American League teams to have a deep playoff run. And I think that the strengths of their roster are uh, you'll see those players more in October and where there is some weakness on the roster, it, it'll matter less because because of the way that teams are often working more with like a 20-man roster in October. Obviously, you want the depth. You'll see everybody. But who, who tends to matter more? Like your fourth and fifth starter, they don't really matter that much in October. And when it comes to the front three, I mean, I don't think there's another club in the American League in or out of the playoffs that can match the White Sox front three starters. I think you have to go to the National League and then you go to the Brewers, who was my pick to win the whole thing this year, which was basically, a you know, maybe an excessive, but a bet on the front three guys in their rotation. 
Yeah, it goes a long way, as we've seen in recent postseasons, to have three great starters and being able to shorten up the list of relievers that you rely on. But even if the White Sox have to remove a starter after four, their bullpen, I think, runs six deep with quality arms because you got Hendricks and Kimbrell, Aaron Bummer's nasty, Ryan Tapera was a good kind of small addition at the deadline. Garrett Crochet is still there. Kopech can give you some volume. And Ronaldo Lopez is part of that too. So really, it's seven. I guess he's sort of the the extra guy, the piggyback guy if a starter really goes short or has an early injury. So I think that's part of what makes this team so appealing. And then, of course, offensively, there's just a lot of balance here. Jose Abreu is probably a guy that doesn't get discussed enough. I think with the White Sox being good, he'll be discussed a lot during this postseason. But he's been just as good, if not better, than advertised from day one in Chicago. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that about Bummer, too. I think it was Joe Sheehan in his newsletter um, talked about Bummer you know, coming back and how effective he's been and how he doesn't get. You know, he's not as famous, obviously, as a lot of the other um, uh, as just some of the other guys you mentioned in the bullpen. You know, Kimbrell's been just kind of okay since um, – since the White Sox acquired him, he's been homer prone. I mean, the strikeout and walk stuff has been basically the same, but because he's given up a few more home runs, a little more contact, he hasn't been the guy I think they thought they were acquiring, but they have other guys. They have a lot more depth in that bullpen, but like what I would almost call October depth. In other words, would you pick this bullpen as one of the best bullpens to help you get through a long regular season? No, that's, I think where its flaws might potentially be exposed. However, in the short, more short series of October, uh, where you can lean more on the more important guys. Yeah, I think this bullpen's in much better, um, uh, is much better situated for that. And I think that the lineup is good. Lineup is not elite. Maybe it's not as good. Obviously, the, the Astros are particularly good at not striking out, putting the ball in play, doing damage when they put the ball in play. So it's, you know, where the advantage is in this series, at least to tilt towards the Astros, I might give them a little bit of a nod there. Nothing, not to say anything. Bad about the White Sox lineup, but the Astros are particularly good at that. And I would give them the nod in the dugout. I think Dusty Baker is a pretty significant advantage for them. I think he's shown himself to be you – know, give Baker credit. He is not the manager he was way back when he was with the Cubs and overworked Wooden prior. Um, you know, at each stop, he's – he's had multiple. He's improved. Um, and I think he's the best manager he's ever been right now, which is really to his credit because it's at an age where we would, I think, often say – He's not going to change. He's not going to get better. And you worry about him making the best decisions at this point. And instead, I think Baker has, in his last two stops, actually, turned out to be a really, really strong tactical manager. Yeah, the fit's been fantastic with Dusty in Houston, which maybe wasn't an opinion that everybody had or a projection everybody had when that decision was made to bring him in. The Houston rotation, I think, is going to be a key in the series. I mean, Lance McCullers, from Valdez, we've seen them pitch really well. In previous postseasons, Jose Urquidy, I think, is underrated. He's healthy, finally, after struggling to stay on the mound throughout the regular season. And Luis Garcia, obviously an AL Rookie of the Year candidate this year. I think it's going to come down, really, to Garcia and Urquidy, how effective they are and how much stress they end up putting on the bullpen in their starts in particular. And I think they have a few guys that people do overlook in that core relievers. Christian Javier is sort of their glue guy. I talked about Ronaldo Lopez and Michael Kopech in the White Sox bullpen. Houston at least has a guy like that in Javier. Plus, they've got an extra arm. Oh, his name's Zach Greinke. Oh, is he new? I haven't heard of that guy before. Grinky? I think, no. So Zach Greinke, he's 
this is interesting because I heard that he had tried to change up his approach during the regular season to be more efficient because of the younger starters and they didn't want him to tax the bullpen. So instead of trying to strike guys out, it was a little more of a contact, keep the ball in the zone sort of approach. I don't know if that's entirely true or if that's just an explanation for not striking as many guys out that is supposed to satisfy us. But uh, Grinky being an extra arm is kind of a nice luxury to have. Mm hmm. Yes, absolutely. It is um, interesting that a guy that who was acquired a couple of years ago to potentially be, you know, I think you would say at that point, another number one starter for them is now kind of more of a depth option. And you know, it's like you got to, I think you have to give Baker a lot of credit and you have to give the R&D guys in Houston a lot of credit too, who've managed to, you know, that system's down under Jeff Lunau. They weren't drafting quite as well. Um, you know, they cut Luna cut scouting dramatically across the board. And so the pipeline of talent that had started before he even got there, it started with Bobby Heck was scouting director. And the first couple of drafts, obviously the Astros often picked first. They picked first three years in a row. They had extra money to spend. So the farm system was really, really good. And then they won and they started trading away some of that talent, promoting some of that talent, obviously, which is what you do with a good farm system, but they weren't backfilling at all. And when they just gutted scouting too, you could see the pipeline of talent coming into the farm system was not as good as it had been before. And so they're just, they had less to work with. Obviously they lost some of those guys, you know, losing trading talent for Garrett Cole and Garrett Cole leaves as a free agent. Well, there's no Garrett Cole stepping in to replace him. And yet they've managed to backfill with some, I would say less heralded guys. I mean, Luis Garcia was a top 100 prospect. He's not a, a nobody, but I, I don't know that, anyone fairly expected him to be he's basically the the rookie pitcher of the year an award that does not exist but he would be the al rookie pitcher of the year and they've done a really nice job with some of those guys stepping in and managing to pitch as you know average to above average major league starters despite being like i said i think relatively unheralded and it's how they're able to to float the loss of a cole and a verlander and the you know gradual decline of a zach Greinke that gives them the I said, I think the White Sox rotation is the best in the American League, the playoff rotation, but that is not some sort of backhanded way to slag the Astros rotation either. The Astros are good. The Astros are very good. If the Astros won this series, I would not be the least bit surprised. I just think that that is a particular strength of the White Sox that would lead me, that did lead me to pick them in, in essentially any matchup they're going to have. Yeah, and looking at, at Houston's offense, you mentioned it before. I mean, this is the, the typical Astros build. They do not strike out much. They do plenty of damage. They lead the league in WRC Plus as a team. They had 10 hitters, 10, with 150 or more plate appearances who were above average in terms of WRC Plus as individuals. Like top to bottom, that's absolutely loaded. Even secondary guys like Jake Myers have exceeded expectations. Obviously, the core with Correa and Altuve and Bregman and Tucker and Jordan Alvarez, like that is just a, a nasty lineup to have to deal with. But that's, again, a big part of why these teams match up so well. The White Sox might have that edge in starting pitching, but the Astros have that little edge in terms of the overall quality and depth of their offense. This is a, a tangent, but somebody, uh, you know, talking to somebody in the industry the other day, and he asked, what kind of contract do you think Correa gets as a free agent? Because Correa, like very quietly, had a really good year, 366 on base, 485 slug, um, you know, I don't think he's a shortstop really long term, but as it turns out, some of the defensive metrics, I think DRS in particular, the one you, you see, um, uh, it's on both sites, but it is part of the war calculation on baseball reference actually rates him quite highly. 
I think a lot of that's probably more positioning than anything else, but give Correa credit. He's turned out to be a better defensive shortstop to stay at shortstop longer than most folks expected, given how, given his size, what kind of projection he had back when he was like 17 or so. But uh, he's 26, he'll be 27 next year as a player who I think you sign him as a shortstop and figure he'll move off the position at some point, uh, who gets on base, who doesn't actually strike out all that much compared to you know, the direction of, you know, most, most power hitters do strike out quite a bit more. Uh, you know, to me, he is, a, I haven't done my free agent rankings yet. I'll do that in about, you know, this is me quietly looking at the calendar about three weeks from now. <laughs> he might be the best free agent available this off season. He might be the guy I'd give the most money to given age skill set. I think the only thing working against him is um, he's had some injury history. So is Corey Seager for that matter. So like just spitballing, how many years would you give Correa and what kind of average annual salary would you think about? I mean, I would give him six years given his age. He's only 27 right now, just turned 27 mm-hmm. in September. So I'm comfortable with six years. He's probably a $30 million a year player. I don't know if that's enough to even get him. No, I'd, I would guess eight years. Eight yeah. years is probably what's required. I mean, maybe he's looking for 10, right? Machado and Harper. Well, Harper got like 13, but it was really 10 plus something to kind of spread the money around, et cetera. But you know, if I'm Correa's agent, I'm I'm absolutely looking for. I'm saying I want ten years and three hundred something million. Probably very happy with eight years. Um, God, and I would give it to him. Right, eight years runs through age thirty five. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, I would do that. Um, I think even if he never is any better than he was this year. By the way, he was really good this year. Like that's a hell of a player and a and a. You know, will fill a critical need for a lot of teams that are looking for a long-term shortstop. I, I don't know if it's because he's in Houston, because he's never really, because he hasn't won any hardware. He's not a, hasn't led the league in a significant category, but I feel like he's not recognized as he, no, this is a $30 million guy. He should be discussed in the class of $30 million players. The market will tell us, right? Ultimately, it doesn't matter what people say about him. It matters what somebody chooses to pay him. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great point. I do think the Seager comp is interesting because Seager is oversized for a shortstop, just like Correa. Has this skill set as a hitter that I would say I expect to see age gracefully. I mean, you probably have to move him off shortstop partway through the deal, right? So if you, if you give him, let's 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 settle on eight years. Like that does make sense as the most likely outcome. Okay, so four years each at shortstop, and then four years at third base. I mean, who do you do you think it's a one A one B situation with Correa and Seager, or do you have the strong preference for Correa? Correa, I would lean Correa. It's a slight age difference, so that's not really the deciding factor. But I think the the data we have support Correa shortstop more. Um, I just lean that direction. And they both had injury histories, right? So it's not like I mean, the one thing that works, I think, against Correa, I don't think applies as much here um, to discussions of, of uh, it doesn't work against him so much in a comparison to Seager. Yeah, and the rib injury last year seemed like a pretty fluky one. A lot of the injuries are you know, back oblique, some soft tissue things for Correa with Seager. It was the, the hip surgery a couple years ago, which to me is a bigger deal. But then maybe the chronic stuff is more likely to, to linger. I mean, I, I think both carry a little bit of risk, but both relative to that risk, I think, are, are risks worth taking. Let's move on to the Red Sox-Rays series. 
this is a Boston team that has to kind of follow, I think, the model of what we saw from the Nationals uh, two off-seasons ago, or two post-seasons ago, rather, where they're going to have to shorten up that group of pitchers as much as they possibly can, have some starters go on their throw days, and get really creative with how they get some of the late-inning outs covered. Because I think bullpen depth is not a strength for this team right now. Yeah, uh, I would agree. I think that's exactly what they've got to do. Um, and I think, um, you know, that was their word. Uh, look, Boston's already gotten farther, I think, than most people expected, myself included. Um, I thought this was going to be kind of a build year. But I think they're kind of running into, um, you know, maybe the worst possible opponent for them at this point. And I think the things that are strengths for Tampa Bay, like that if you just try to line up strengths and weaknesses, again, acknowledging basically any playoff series is more like, you know, 55, 45 odds. That's probably as strong as you can say about it. Um, that I think in this particular case, they're, they may be the, the worst possible opponent for the Red Sox. The Rays may be the worst possible opponent. Um, and they can still win the series, but I think that there's, um, I think what you said is probably the the most important thing for Boston. If they are to come out of this series, it's the most important thing for them to do. Yeah, that's the script. If there's a Boston yeah, run deep into way the postseason, that's how it's going to happen. And they're going to hit a ton. That's the other way too, right? They're going to score five or six runs every night because the core of the lineup goes off and, and then secondary guys come through. Yeah, and if Tampa just shuts the Tampa's pitching, just shuts them down, right? That's it. That's just going to be, but I mean, that's again, you could say that, like, that's almost like a tautology, right? If the opposing pitching just shuts your offense down, well, you're probably not going to win the series. Do you think, looking at the two teams that were in the AL wildcard game, do you think the Rays had a preference between the Red Sox and the Yankees? Is there one team that the Rays match up better with than the other, or one team that matches up better with the Rays than the other? Because I actually think Boston's offense, because they strike out less is just more problematic. Balls in play are what you don't want when you're mixing and matching relievers the way the Rays do. So that, to me, was the one thing that tilted in favor of Boston being a tougher matchup for the Rays, relatively speaking. Yeah, I... I, Yes. Yes. Exactly what you just said. I think they probably would have preferred to have faced the Yankees, where you do have a bit of a gauntlet to run in the middle of that Yankees lineup, but there were some holes. There were some guys you could certainly pitch to there. And... Also, I think that, um, you know, and we, we saw Garrett Cole just wasn't, probably just wasn't healthy. Hamstring's been bothering him for a couple of weeks now. He wasn't as good in September. That was probably a factor. It's probably why he wasn't as good the other night. It's probably why Boone took him out sooner, recognizing that. And you look at the rest of that Yankees rotation, they were just, I, you know, I maybe Aaron Boone does get fired. I don't think this playoff loss was his fault, but. But obviously, you got you know, you can't fire the players, so somebody has to get blamed. I don't think Brian Cashman should be fired or blamed for this. Just between injuries and some, you know, some bad luck here and there, they were just not really well positioned for a playoff run. I thought they'd win the wild card game because I thought we'd see healthy Garrett Cole, and we didn't. That's um, on me. Fine, bad p- prediction that went wrong. I'm not uh, trying to justify it, but. Man, if you said going into October, hey, Garrett Cole's not going to be 100%, why would you pick them to win a playoff series, right? The Yankees would just have to be so explosive offensively to beat, you know, you look at the teams they were likely to face in the, you know, Tampa, White Sox, even Houston, it was going to be a problem. A lot of their lineup was probably not going to be very effective. So I I think that if I were the Rays, I would have picked, said, yeah, I'd rather face the 
the Yankees. I think their Yankees were just coming into October in worse shape. Yeah, looking at this team, Aaron Boone doesn't seem like the problem. I mean, you can change managers and maybe change, I don't know, something around the clubhouse, and that could be slightly helpful. But I just don't think he's the reason they failed. I'm with you on that completely. I think the biggest flaw in the roster for me is the amount that they strike out. I mean, comparing them to a Houston or a Toronto, when they get to the postseason, good bullpens, good mixes Mm -hmm. of pitchers can just shut that offense down. They have to find a way to reduce the swing and miss in this offense. I think we're going to see almost certainly one of the big free agent shortstops, and that would also include Trevor Story, uh, obviously a couple of the guys too. Someone's going to end up going to the Yankees to be their new shortstop. I think Correa makes all the sense in the world for them. When you think about his skills, and you could say Corey Seager fits really well too as a lefty in Yankee Stadium, short porch, we get it, but that's the main flaw with the offense. There's a little bit too much feast or famine because of the swing and miss that they have. And the, the more they can kind of push that out with the additions and, and subtractions they make over the course of the offseason, I think the better off they're going to be next season. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think Correa is the best fit. My guess is the Yankees probably go after several. I would, right? I'd contact all of them and say, okay, we're interested. We're looking for a shortstop. The one we, you know, we personally have our rankings our opinions we want this guy first this guy's second you know but we're interested in all of them don't sign anywhere without coming back and talking to us um Correa would be I think he's going to be at the top of my free agent rankings I think he'd be my top preference I think he'd be a great fit in New York I think they'd all be great fits in New York I just I think he's the best player and I think he's likely to be the best player for them going forward and then it would also get you know, maybe Maybe it opens them up to trading Gliber Torres. I mean, Torres is a guy I'd be very interested in if I was another club maybe that's coming on, that's improving and looking at the long term and saying, hey, I'm willing to roll the dice on we get Gliber and we fix whatever it is that's ailing. And we talked about him a couple of weeks ago. He's just not the player he used to be. Um, I don't really know why, but I would um, very much be interested in trying to, you know, is he really a reclamation project? Is that even too strong a way to phrase it? I don't know, but I I would absolutely bet on just get him into a different situation out of New York, change of scenery. Maybe you can fix some specific things and you can, um, maybe there's some untapped upside there. Yeah, I think if you want to trade a Yankee, Torres brings you back the most intriguing players back. You talked about it possibly being a Yankees-Marlins fit a while back. I think it was before yeah. Sandy Alcantara went on fire in the second half. So Yes, right? Yeah. So timing might have been key there. That might be out the window at this point. But yeah, I don't I, think they're going to trade him now, right? That's like, I think he's kind of part of the core now. Well, between him and then Sixto, you know, who knows when Sixto comes back. Now, if I'm the Marlins, if I'm Kim Ang, I'm thinking, no, actually, let's keep this guy. We can, I got a pretty good one through four ready to roll for next year. Yeah, we're going to win with pitching and, and figure out hitting uh, later on. Yep. I think that's the... actually. They'd be an interesting team to go out. No, maybe it's not one of the shortstops, but go out. They, if they went out and spent on a bat this winter, obviously no one ever expects the Marlins to spend. It's a different ownership group, different era. Maybe they do. But I would be very – like they should go out and find a, a bat. Yeah, one I, more bat, and suddenly they're a lot more interesting next year. I could see them being involved with like three- and four-year deal type players, like yeah. good good players, not necessarily guys that are going to get $100 million plus, but good players that will make that lineup considerably better. I think the other way this could go, if they don't get a trade they like with Gleiber, Luke Voigt's probably gone because you can't have Gleiber and DJ LeMayhew 
and Voight and John Carlos Stanton all existing on the same roster if you're going to add to the left side of the infield as well, right? Some Something has to give. Voight is the type of player that teams just don't give up a lot to, to get, even though he's an above-average bat when he's healthy. Yep, I completely agree. That's He is the type of player. I mean, they got him for a guy who was at the time just another just another minor league reliever, right? But also I think teams look and they say, nah, we can make a Luke Voigt. We, we, we can do that. We've, we've got our, you know, whatever your team is, whatever your player development is, they feel like now nah, we can, we can create guys like that. And, um, and they're not wrong. I mean, heck, the guy who won the wildcard game for the Dodgers was basically that, right? Chris Taylor was a utility infield prospect in the Marlins system. And they got him in a, you know, what seemed at the time like a fairly insignificant trade. And, but they made some changes to him. Player development got a hold of him and he became a different player. Yeah, a really remarkable transformation for Chris Taylor. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. Uh, just circling back to that Red Sox Rays series for just a minute. I think the big question for me is how well does this young group of Rays starters hold up? And clearly they trust these guys in high pressure spots. I mean, look at how Shane Boz entered the big leagues. Look at the situations in which he pitched to start his big league career. McClanahan, Drew Rasmussen, Boz Patino and Ryan Yarbrough sort of is the glue guy. I mean, it, it's it's a younger group and it's a different group than the one that that helped bring them to the World Series last year, but how confident are you in that group doing what they need to do to help the Rays advance? Yeah, well, I, I, obviously they get criticized quite a bit for this, but I, I I trust the Rays kind of implicitly that they're going to utilize their players in the most efficient manner. They will get the most production out of them, even if two outsiders it looks strange. And obviously everyone wants to talk about pulling Blake Snell. I, I think I understood the logic in that move. I might've done it one batter. I think I said one batter later at that point where it wasn't there a left-hander one or two batters later, but it was a small criticism, but that's, that's what they're going to do. The Rays are going to, that's their, their belief is, and the Rays are one of the best run organizations in baseball, but their belief is very clearly this is what got us here. You don't deviate from your process when you get to the higher pressure situation. You don't make different 
brand new battlefield decisions, right? You get you whatever got you through 162 games, had you with the best record in the American League. You don't lose that process once you get into the postseason. So they're going to do that, right? They're going to take Shane Boz and use him according to their plan. They take Boz and they recognize he's really, really good. He's going to end up at top of the rotation starter. But for right now, limited experience, been working on you know, with, with somewhat more limited workloads within games. We're going to fit him into our paradigm in a very, but you know, we're going to take him and use him the way that we use players like that. That that is the proper way for us to deploy and implement and, and utilize a player like that with that specific skill set. And it will probably look strange to us. But I've also I trust them. I trust their processes. I know their people and how they think enough to say, "Now nah, I'm, I'm I'm good. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt until um, until something changes that makes me question that decision." Now on the position player side, this is a slightly different core from last year too because Wander is up. Obviously, yeah. Adame is traded, gone, and then Nelson Cruz was added too. So I think. If you said, what was the biggest flaw with the 2020 Rays in the postseason, I would have said they struck out too much. And yep. those two guys should help bring that down quite a bit. So I think they're a bit more dangerous offensively. Obviously a little younger in the rotation. Bullpen, it's close to as good as last year. I think the one thing that's a little different for me is Nick Anderson. And he broke down in the postseason last year. But they don't yeah. have that one reliever that you could just say, yeah, the game's over, that guy's in. That's the one thing that they don't have in the pen that they had entering last year's postseason. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm just looking to see, because this is also like such a no-name bullpen, right? It, I mean, that would be a heck of a trivia thing, right? How many guys in the on the Rays playoff roster who are not starters could you name? I would probably have a hard time naming many of these guys. Look, it's not like I don't know who they are, but could I pull these names out? This is, they get good work out of guys you've kind of never heard of. Andrew Kitteridge, who always makes me think of that Pulitzer winning novel, right? Olive Kitteridge. <laughs> um, I don't even know if it's quite spelled the same way. I mean, looking at the year he had, Buck 88 ERA, the, the 10 walks and 77 strikeouts in 71 innings. This guy had an unbelievable year. How many people how many serious baseball fans recognize that especially because he's a reliever right? so he's not even big for fantasy players necessarily like to me that's um yeah there's uh they get really good work out of guys you've kind of never heard of which is right that's part of their thing um but they to me that also makes me not want to but i get what you're saying i i'm almost questioning that is is a lot of that just because we, we haven't really heard of these guys? Like Andrew Kitteridge was so good this year, and you never heard of him. Most people have probably – it's probably an exaggeration. You don't realize how good he is. He's not as famous. Or Nick Anderson had been traded for, so he was more front of his more availability to the mind of him. That's not the case with these guys, but they're probably still going to be pretty good after all. Oh yeah, there's there's no lack of trust in what they've assembled, but I think the lack of that one truly dominant arm is the one thing that looks a little different. Still a very good bullpen, even if yeah. maybe maybe the best in the postseason. Maybe it'll prove to be, but at least on paper, doesn't look like it is. 
I think fantasy people just are familiar with all the names because they've tried finding saves in Tampa Bay and, and <laughs> missed you time and time again. You fantasy people. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of people out there like, I had JT Chargois on my roster, and I, all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Right. <laughs> Let's uh, go to the NL side for a bit. Braves-Brewers, uh, that gets underway on Friday. I think the Braves' top three starters are, are solid. They're not as good as the Brewers, but they're good enough to stay in games. Waskari Noah is kind of a, a nice wild card guy that you can throw out there in a five-game series. If anyone goes short, you don't have to necessarily save him as a starter in this round if you don't want to. They have questions in their bullpen. I think Will Smith, even the day they clinched the division, Will Smith was pretty wobbly that day. I think he's a good reliever, but not necessarily a great one. Richard Rodriguez hasn't been that good since they acquired him. So I think they're their bullpen looks like a, a possible issue. Uh, two young guys, though, that could be in the mix, Spencer Strider and Dylan Lee. I'm kind of curious to see how Atlanta wants to deploy them. How about Spencer Strider, huh? A What was he, a fourth-round pick last year? And a prospect, certainly, but he'd had some injury issues and, you know, it wasn't clear. You know, obviously last year in the draft, right, there were a lot of guys who were just sort of misevaluated. Oh, I shouldn't even say that. Under-evaluated in last year's draft. Nick York with the Red Sox, right? Nobody thought he was a first-round pick. And he went out and certainly played like somebody who deserved to be a first-round pick uh, this year in the minors as a 19-year-old in low A. And then in high A, he hit for extremely high average. He doesn't punch. It's you, I think last year's draft, that 2020, the pandemic draft, we're going to look back on that for years and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that a lot of weird stuff happened there. A lot of guys came out of nowhere. And maybe a full-season Spencer Strider is a much higher draft pick, um, maybe with a different history. But in this case, um, yeah, Strider, I think, could be a really interesting, surprising weapon for them. Probably just targeted, probably bullpen, very short bursts. Obviously, he had the two major league appearances this year. It's just out of the pen. He worked as a starter this year, but he didn't even average five innings a start. I think just try to keep him healthy. But could he be, you know, like Shane Boz? Like, I always think of David Price as kind of the David Price's rookie year where he came up in September and... He was just an inning at a time, but he was devastating. And obviously that didn't change the long-term plan to make him a starter. Like I could see that with Strider. I could see that with Baz, that we'll see those guys used in very, very targeted fashion in the postseason. Of course, you got to get to those high leverage situations in the first place, but that's how I expect to see those guys. And they'll be th- that I mean for me personally, they're the guys I'm I'll be most interested in tuning in to see. Yeah, I think in terms of, of team tactics, managerial tactics, I don't know how much of the decision actually comes down to the manager as far as when those guys are really going to sure. enter the game. That seems like more of a group sort of decision. It's one of the more fascinating things about how the game is played in the postseason right now. And I hope older baseball fans are, are on board with it. I hope it's not the kind of thing where they're annoyed by it because I think it does make the game more fun. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. Here's one. So Brewers fans should earmuff it for about 20 seconds. You know, go, go <laughs> refill your beer, your coffee or whatever it is. But I looked this up because I was curious when the last time was a team with an offense as far below average as the Brewers offense was yeah. in the regular season won the World Series. Not surprisingly, go back to the 95 Braves. And as I've said on a few other shows, the shoe fits like the way this Brewers team is built with that big three atop the rotation couple great relievers. Obviously, they're down one with the Devin Williams injury, which is unfortunate. They do have a similar design as that 95 Braves team. I don't know if that approach can be as effective in 2021 Mm -hmm. as it was in 1995, but 
yeah, the 95 Braves are the last team to have a WRC plus as low as what the Brewers had in the regular season, a 92. We've had some below average teams offensively win World Series since then. The Royals in 2015, I think, were the most recent. But they had a different sort of build, right? A little more speed, similar in terms of, of defense, maybe a slightly deeper bullpen. I don't know if the bullpen was that much better. But it's just interesting to me that that's how far back you have to go to find an offense at this level that actually won a World Series. Yeah, I think Eno pointed that out in that playoff picks um, column. And my counter argument to that is, well, you know, Eno, huh? <laughs> you know, I, I wonder, like you would probably say no team has ever struck out as much. Whoever wins the World Series, I guess that's not true if Houston wins the World Series, but we've some of the historical norms have changed because of the changing nature of baseball offenses in the last couple of years, right? So we're probably seeing um, historically exceptional strikeout rates, for example, for teams winning the World Series, for offenses that win the World Series. Just be my guess. Actually, I could probably look that up at, at some point. Um, maybe not in the middle of us recording a podcast, but that my guess is that's true, that a lot of these things that used to be true um, are not holding right now. And that was kind of my thought with the Brewers too, was, you know, that, that's probably been true historically. I also have a feeling, look, if the Brewers win the World Series, it's because the big three pitched them to a World Series. And it's great. To, it is a great defensive club. And the key guys in their bullpen, other than, you know, wall punch and Devin Williams. Um, yeah, that hurts. Bullpen's still good without him. It's better with him. But... I, if, if they win the World Series, it's going to be because they give up like three runs in the month of October, obviously, and they hit just enough. But I can also very much see the argument. Yeah, that's not a great – it's not a traditional World Series winning offense, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that the changing nature of baseball is uh, – um, some of those historical norms have changed. Maybe they just haven't changed enough to allow the Brewers to win with an offense like this. Yeah, I think a, a big part of it too will be getting Christian Yelich going. He just – was not himself in 2021. MVP Yelich of two and three years ago. If that guy comes back, that changes a lot about the complexion. Maybe it makes him an average sort of offense. And an average offense with that pitching absolutely can be a team that wins the World Series. Uh, last matchup I wanted to get to, Dodgers-Giants. Uh, this was a slugfest all year in the NL West. And it feels right that they're matching up. It feels wrong that it has to be in the first round of the playoffs, given the regular season they had. But then I started to look into how much they picked on the Diamondbacks and the Rockies. And they're both great teams. I'm not trying to nitpick the Dodgers and the Giants. Mm -hmm. But that made me feel less bad about these teams having to play each other in the LDS round. Oh, because they beat the heck out of the what's the? They both annihilated them. I, I'll I'll pull up the numbers here again in a minute. But somebody tried to argue with me that the Dodgers had just had a historic season, and it was wrong to say that they weren't somehow the postseason favorites. I mean, it was Twitter that he probably didn't have the characters or the, you know, the way we talk on Twitter often is not conducive to good evidence based discussions. But it sort of pointed out. Actually, that's not that I know not to take something away from a 106 win team, but there have been quite a few teams that have won 103 plus and not won the World Series, not advanced to the World Series. We're just seeing and I mean, I think that's another historical norm that's been shattered the last couple of years, too, where is because team there are teams that just don't care. Right. The the you know, the Rockies and Orioles and Pirates this year, they weren't trying to win. They were trying to win just 
extra games. Never mind trying to win in the sense of trying to compete. They just weren't fielding competitive teams. And so you're going to see, we are, I, my guess is we're going to see, unless there's some change in the next CBA that um, provides some incentive for bad teams to win a few more games. Um, we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more of these 105 win teams get to the playoffs and then get knocked out in the first round. So didn't the that happen to the Dodgers two years ago, 2019? Best record in the National League, right? Upset in the NLDS. It happens. And so don't just look at the win total and assume, hey, that's the favorite. Hey, that's the best team in the league or the best team in the majors. I mean, Dodgers are a great team. The Giants, as it turns out, are a great team. I think I missed on them by about 30 wins from my preseason projection. Who the heck knew they were going to have this zombie army of hitters? Um you know, I, everywhere, I I certainly had written off Brandon Crawford's bat and Evan Longoria's bat. And I know Buster Posey was going to be MVP Buster Posey again. Good, good for, and I think it's real. I think it's a huge credit to Gabe Kapler. But I also don't want to overrate these teams based on the performance in the regular season. That's before I knew that they'd never lost to Colorado and Arizona. It was just more that I thought, hey, we're just seeing a lot more of this at this point of these 100-plus win teams. And it probably doesn't mean what it used to mean in terms of team strength or, or a team's advantage going into the postseason. Yeah, I was a little off because I was doing the original search last night before bed. So it was late-night baseball reference time <sighs> in the Van Riper household. But I wasn't off by that much. The Giants went 32-6 and six against those two teams. The Dodgers went 29-9. and nine. Oh. That'll do it. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So great teams. They match up really well. I, I think if you said pick a winner, how do you not pick the Dodgers? I, I think if you're just rooting from like a neutral perspective, you want the Giants story to continue. I, I think the, sure. the Dodgers, as I've said on this show before, to me, they're the evil empire in Major League Baseball right now. It's not the Yankees. They're they're the common enemy of the non-Dodger fan because they're just so good. It's fun to root against the teams that are that good. It's easier for me to accept that now that the Dodgers actually won. Mm -hmm. Right. They won a World Series. Then that changes it. Right. Then the Dodgers being so good in spending money and hitting on um, again and again in the draft and again and again through player development. That's all. It makes me want to root for a team like that till they win. Once they win the World Series, it's like, all right, they got there. OK, now now they can be your. Oh, my God. What is the term for this? Sort of like the. I'm think, trying to think of the literary term, but like the, they're useful antagonists, right? Mm -hmm. You need that sort of common enemy for everybody. Ah, oh, I hate the Dodgers. There's, they just spend all the money. That's not actually true, but that's where how people feel. You know what? Fine. All right. They won already. It, you know, somebody else can win. I mean, I, I will admit too, when picking the Brewers to win the World Series would be pretty awesome, right? They've never won. That's they and the Padres, I would say, are probably the most, uh, I guess you could throw the Mariners in there. They're just a younger franchise, but these are two pretty snake bit franchises. The Brewers have what the one World Series appearance ever. Yep. In I'm trying to fifty three is this their fifty third season? There was sixty nine, right, as the pilots. Right. One year in Seattle, which I was counting in that. So whatever it is, that's a lot of years to have not won to have won just one pen and did not win the World Series. If you're asking me sentimentally, I'm not a fan of any team anymore. And um, even my daughter knows that I hate all teams. Um, it'd be pretty awesome, right? To see a city, a fan base that has just, they've never had it. They've never, you know, there are people who were kids as, you know, there are Brewers fans as kids who are now 
older than I am, 60 years old, and have never gotten to see their team win a World Series, it'd be pretty great, actually. I'd be very, very excited, and I would get kind of sentimental over that. It is a, a fan base that is very passionate. Um, you know, I've lived there for a long time, 20 plus years, and that's the team I root for. I'm still allowed to root for a team technically because I don't cover one. I try mm-hmm. to strip that away, of course, on the pods and everything. But October kind of brings that out a little bit. Uh, there are there are lifelong fans. You're right. There are people who've been waiting forever to actually see it happen. So, uh, especially on the heels of the Bucks winning the NBA title, be a, a oh, great yeah, great year, that. a great year in Wisconsin sports if the Brewers could keep that momentum going. A few other things I wanted to get to here: fall league rosters are Woo-hoo! out. Yeah, and they look. They look really good, Keith. And I know you said on, on your show that you're excited just to see anybody. And I, yeah. I think that's the the general sentiment of most people who haven't gone out and seen much baseball in the last two seasons now. But uh, as you saw the rosters come in, uh, what names really jumped off the page to you as players you were excited to go see? Yeah, so there were about a dozen guys from my top 100 um, You know, I only published a top 50 midseason. So my when I say my top 100, this is kind of me, you know, I keep mental lists. I keep scratch outs and notes. I won't publish a full hundred till this winter, but the Tigers sent their top two, Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green, both of whom I think are in my top 10 at this point. Um, CJ Abrams, who was, I think, second on my midseason list. No, second or third, maybe on my midseason list and could have been one overall over Adley Rutschman, except he'd suffered a knee or leg injury. So he was out. He missed basically the second half of the season. We might have seen Abrams in the big leagues. Yeah, that not happened. And so, A, I'm dying to see him. I haven't actually seen Abram since high school. Um, and he's turned out to be a better hitter and to show more power in pro ball than he did in high school. And I, I think he's got a He and Green were 5-6 in that draft class. Green 5 to the Tigers. Abram 6 to the Padres. So, dying to see him. Gabriel Moreno for the Blue Jays. Um had one of the best seasons of any prospect this year, but missed quite a bit of time with a broken thumb. Um, he may not show his full power, right? That tends to happen after thumb, finger, hand, wrist injuries, but still like to see him. Would love to see him catching also, because everything I've heard is that he's a really good catcher in addition to a pretty advanced hitting prospect. Mackenzie Gore, right? Don't we all want to see what's going on with Mackenzie Gore? And that's, I think, part of why we saw these changes in the Padres player development side. I think a lot of it was that Gore just completely stalled out last year into this year. I mean, there's some people who say he's got the yips. I don't, that's clearly not true, right? He came back and pitched, but he's been erratic. He's been wild. After two years ago, he was clearly the best pitching prospect in the minors by stuff and by performance and should have been in the big leagues for them this year. What happened? What does he look like? And they've tried to tone down the delivery a little bit. So there are a lot of those guys in fall league as well as Guys who are not on my top 100, but maybe they're different than I thought they were. Justin Foscue with the Rangers, who went absolutely bananas in high A and then got promoted as a college product, as he should, and then gets promoted to double A and kind of doesn't hit. So that I have a lot of questions, right? What what did happen? What does he look like at this point? Do we cut him some slack because he had barely, you know, barely played in 2020? Asa Lacey, who was the best pitching prospect in that pandemic draft, and kind of lost the strike zone himself to a pretty serious degree this year. So what does that one look like? Um, yeah, there's a lot of these. There's a lot of guys I want to see. And I've seen Torkelson and Green and Brett Beatty is there for the Mets. I saw him this year. So there's a few of these guys I've seen, but there are plenty of guys I haven't. And like I said, I'd just be glad to be there. It's such a prospect-packed environment. It's one of those, it's, it's kind of mentally exhausting 
to try to go scout the fall league, but I love it, right? It's just everywhere you look, there's players that is so different from the ordinary scouting experience where generally at a minor league game, if I'm there, it's to see maybe three players at the most who I'm really bearing down on. And then maybe somebody else catches my eye. At the amateur level, you're often just going to see one. In fall league, it's no, just don't stop writing. Don't look down. Don't look at your phone. I'm very bad about that. But still, don't look at your phone, right? Because you might miss something. You will miss something because there's just players. There's just prospects everywhere. There's future big leaguers all over the field at all times. And I love that. I miss that. You know, right? That is like very much the right into my veins of of scouting. It was my favorite trip to take every year. And I was so bummed that I'm, I know why it was canceled last year. I supported it. I wouldn't have gotten on a plane anyway. But man, am I glad it is back. Yeah, it is one of the best environments to watch baseball. Crowds are small. Tickets are affordable. It's like eight bucks to get into a oh game. Oh, my God. Yes. If you're there... Go. You will see. Don't worry about which game to go to. Just go. You will see big leaguers. And if you have the means to actually fly out there, the Fall Stars game, like the actual kind of showcase game for the league, it won't have all the players Keith mentioned. Some of those guys will get shut down. They'll go home before this game. It's on November 13th. It's far enough away you could actually book a little trip to get out there oh, yeah. and see that. You get them all in one shot or most of them all in one shot. Oh, you know who's there? Didn't we talk about this? Pedro Leon? Was it with you? We were talking about who might be in fall. I don't remember who I was even talking to. But somebody asked me, maybe it was Eric Longenhagen. Somebody asked me, you know, who's somebody you think might be in the fall league who you'd like to see? And that was the name I threw out because Pedro Leon, guy I wanted to see before the season. I just got a quick look at him at the Futures game. He missed a bunch of time with injury. He's a Cuban player the Astros signed who's extremely tooled up. They sent him right to double A. He went something like one for 21 with 11 strikeouts to start the year and then hit and then was really hitting and then he got hurt. So he needs the reps. It made a ton of sense that they'd send him and would love to see what he looks like against reasonably good competition. You can get, there's a lot of variability in the fall league, but a lot of it looks like double A. So I think it's perfect level for him, perfect test and a chance for me to maybe just get a BP session with him and maybe eight or so, you know, six to eight at bats and hopefully see him run. He's supposed to run really well. I still haven't gotten to see that in person. Do I sound excited? Like I'm excited. I want to get out there and see these players. It'll be actually the longest trip I have taken um, since the pandemic started. Um, even though I'm only going just for the for the first week of games, but this is like, this feels very significant. Like, I don't want to say anything's back to normal because nothing's back to normal, but this is pretty good. Yeah, I think you do sound genuinely excited, and I think you also know you have got good food on tap. Oh my god, I won't get to all the places. I don't think you eat poorly very often, but you no. you know that area really well, and there's actually oh a lot god. of great food around the valley. So I, uh, I got a whole list, Hillside Spot and Crepe Bar and Cartel Coffee. And do I get to Pizzeria Bianco? It's tough. Sometimes oh, it's hard. I don't really have time. And it's so I good. Sneak in there. I have to go to one of the Grimaldi's places because that was my daughter's favorite when we lived out there. And I absolutely go there once every trip to Arizona and send her a picture to taunt her. She's 15. <laughs> she's old enough. And, and you know, I get back the text, I hate you. And I'm like, I know you do, sweetheart. I love you too. But this is just like, but just tradition now. I have to taunt my daughter with the Grimaldi's pictures is what we do. Well, yeah, that's what you have to do as, as a good parent. Uh, very last question. I, I know we yeah. talked about the Padres uh, making some changes. They let Jace Tingler go. We'll talk about the Padres more in a future episode. The thing that actually surprised me the most for the non-playoff teams in the last week or so, the mm-hmm. Rockies have decided to remove the interim tag from Bill Schmidt and make Bill Schmidt their GM. And like, I don't know Bill. I, I just I, I find the Rockies to be 
puzzling at every turn in terms of their process. I can't figure out what their process is or if they even had one. And it goes back to even things like not moving Trevor Story at the trade deadline. Yeah, I know winning in Colorado is extremely difficult. It's To me, it's going to take a totally different mindset than they've had throughout the franchise's existence if they're going to sustain success in a division with the Dodgers and Giants and Padres, no less. So are they doing anything good here for themselves by sticking with someone who's been in the organization so long. And this is not to just like poo-poo the hire from a, hey, this guy rose to the ranks and became a GM. Like, that's great for him. I just wonder if this is actually the right direction for them as a franchise. So I think Bill Schmidt did a really good job as scouting director. I think he does not get enough recognition for it. Um, You know, in large part because a lot of players he drafted stalled in development i think they've and they've made a lot of changes over the years on the development side and i don't think they've really hit on it but i think bill did a really good job as scouting director and from that sense like merits the promotion um there was never any question he was going to get this job i heard back in july he was going to get this like it's just dick monfort doesn't fire anybody he's extremely loyal maybe to a fault and they were if they did any kind of search which i don't think they did it was going to be very cursory and they were just going to keep him uh, I, I think bill's very good um it was very good in the job that he had and danny montgomery is going to take over as essentially a scouting director i think his title is a little bit different he's great he's really highly respected as an evaluator um i know him extremely well i probably know him better than i know bill schmidt um i know both guys just from from seeing them a billion times on the road over the last 15 years But you've got to look outside somewhere for some new thinking, right? New ideas. You cannot, what was there, and trust me, changing GM is going to make a difference. It's absolutely going to make things better there. However, they need an infusion of new blood somewhere here. It doesn't have to be at the GM chair. And I'm being very careful not to criticize the hiring of Bill Schmidt because I think Bill Schmidt is good. It might have been that he was the right choice all along, but they didn't look outside, which means they didn't consider other ways of doing things enough that, hey, I hope Bill decides to go pick off some people and he knows everybody, right? There's a lot. Bill's been in this game a really long time. He can go hire people from outside the organization. He can go find some great people. I hope he does that. I really hope he does that because they need new thinking there in the Rockies. And that's before even acknowledging the greater challenge of trying to win at altitude and develop players when you've got multiple affiliates playing in kind of extreme hitting environments. It is not an easy task for whoever's GM in Denver. And so I, that's the one thing Bill isn't, you know, he hasn't reached out. He hasn't asked my advice. I'm going to offer this unsolicited. That would be the big thing is, hey, go hire. You know people with other organizations. Go hire the best people you know who come from organizations that have had success because there are clearly a lot of things that do need to change in Colorado. They absolutely need to change the player development processes there. And frankly, what used to they used to have a pretty good international pipeline that's kind of dried up too. And that doesn't have to be changing the people necessarily, but sometimes changing the people means changing the ways of doing things. And that's the one thing I would really like to see going forward. And if you're a Rockies fan, it's the best you could hope for because there was never any chance this was going to be somebody other than Bill Schmidt as GM. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think a lot is going to ride on how much he does reach outside the organization. It's possible that he will. Like there's mm-hmm. that's that's the question. How different are the Rockies going to be? Do do people in other organizations want to work there? 
that's, I think, a possible issue, too. That maybe they've had smart people providing good information in the past. They weren't being listened to, and that's that's cost them people internally. So uh, a, tough, a tough job for all the reasons yeah. that you mentioned, for sure. And I'd love to see them win there because it would be something very different in yep. Colorado. Before we go, to let people know, they should check out this week's episode of the Keith Law Show. Jeremy Booth was Keith's guest. You guys talked a lot about player development and some changes on that front and some uh, high school prospects for the 2022 draft class. So very cool conversation there if you're kind of future focused. You can hear me on the live episodes of Rates and Barrels. That's 1130 Eastern every weekday throughout the playoffs, 830 Eastern if you're on uh, the West Coast like me. Figure it out for yourself. If you're in the middle of the country, it's okay. You'll be able to do that. Three ninety nine a month gets you in the door at theathletic.com slash baseball show. If you're not already a subscriber, this is a great time to get in for playoff coverage for Fall League stuff. Keith will be at the Fall League, which means Woo-hoo! Keith will be writing about the Fall League, which is fantastic, right? Oh, do I have to work? Well, I was just going out there for the pizza and the food and the... Also good. Oh, man. Write Damn some it. food reviews or something. I don't know. Oh, I could do that. I used to do that a lot. Remember when I used to travel? Yeah. That was fun. I kind of miss that. It benefited me when you'd go places because I trust your food recommendations. Oh, I went to a place and say, well, Yelp's fine, but I need to narrow this down a little bit. So let me, where, where does Keith eat? Keith eats well. So go where Keith goes. I do not get cheated. Life is way too short to have bad meals. I'm, I'm on board with that. Uh, on Twitter, you can find Keith at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. Enjoy the postseason matchups this weekend. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. <laughs>